0: of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the digital media editor at Heart and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Nick Sabaral from the Oxford Heart Centre, Oxford, UK. Nick, many thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, James. Uh, Nick, you've recently published a paper in Heart entitled State of the Art in Nuclear Cardiology, which is now live on the website. It's a really intriguing read and I wonder if we could perhaps touch on two or three areas uh, within the paper. The first one really is about the, the section where you talk about what's coming up in the future and you mention uh, the issue of radiation and how, uh, particularly in the uh, change in the detectors which are now available in the latest hardware has really meant a massive reduction in radiation down to I think you quote one to two millisieverts which is certainly uh, far lower than I was used to. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the hardware changes over the last, say, five years? Of course, yes. So the new solid-state
1: detectors, or CZT detectors, are a complete revolution in the way that we undertake perfusion imaging. The old older cameras use sodium iodide crystals. They've been available since the 1960s. This is the first big change in detector technology, and these are much thinner, much higher resolution. They're able to take the counts that are emitted from the patient and give us far clearer pictures and at a much lower dose. So there's a trade-off. We can give the same injected dose and significantly reduce the imaging time down to one or two minutes if you're uh, very good, or we can significantly reduce the dose and keep the same sort of 12-minute imaging time. So the paper in particular that I quoted is from New York. So this is a relatively uh, moderate-sized patient, BMI in the high 20s. And they were getting a stress-only imaging test for uh, 0.99 millisieverts, which I thought was very impressive. If they had to combine the stress and the REST scan, uh, they were getting 4 to 5 millisieverts. Again, it's a very good dose for patients who are on the, well, it depends how we define them, but probably in the medium medium to large size category.
0: And how widely are those scanners available uh, at the moment, Nick?
1: So um, it depends what we're talking about. In the United Kingdom, I know of at least four hospitals that currently have them. There are three manufacturers who are selling these particular devices in the United Kingdom. One of the, uh, as as cameras are replaced throughout the UK, they will almost certainly be moving towards this solid state technology. The manufacturers have tended to uh, limit them to the cardiac specific cameras. So that'll tend to be the high volume centers that use it. So a standard nuclear medicine department may still opt for a standard camera, um, although the technology with the newer cameras is, all, with the old, old technology, but the newer uh, software updates are making those cameras much more accurate and also allow us to use lower doses as well. So there's sort of a win-win situation coming along where doses are going to naturally fall for all sorts of cardiac spec imaging techniques.
0: That's fascinating. And how about any developments in the agents we use for imaging and particularly Things like uh, regadenosin stress rather than adenosine stress. Can you talk a little bit about that and the place it may, may uh, or the part it may play in the future?
1: Of course. So regadenosin stress has been a, a significant sea change. So regadenosin is a selective adenosine A2A receptor agonist. So in it's very similar to adenosine, but causes very little bronchospasm and very little heart block. And it's also non uh, weight adjusted so it's a 400 microgram bolus over 10 seconds and then followed by a saline flush and there's maximum hyperemia about 30 seconds later so it's ideally suited to my fusion imaging especially in a high-throughput department we don't need to muck around with uh, three-way taps or anything like that or syringe drivers it's very easy to give we also can use it on the treadmill or on a bicycle And also, if someone hasn't got to target heart rate, then then in recovery, you can also give the regadenoson then. So it's very safe, very easy to use, and it's revolutionized our department. So we don't have doctors anymore stressing patients with pharmacological agents. It's all given by our physiologists, and they're all trained up. They all give it, and our um, side effect rate is incredibly low with this. So we've already published data on this, this to this effect, and... It's made a significant impact on our throughput and in our ability to stress patients. So we can stress pretty much anyone now who hasn't had a cup of tea or coffee in the last 24 hours.
0: So the caffeine restriction still applies, but it sounds like it's safe in asthmatics, etc., as so opposed in, to adenazine.
1: So in moderate to severe COPD, it's safe. In It's currently licensed only to be used in mild to moderate asthmatics. So my general rule is if someone has active wheeze, if they've been on steroids in the last year or two oral steroids for their uh, asthma or if they've ever been ventilated on an intensive care unit for asthma then they should not be receiving regadenoson or iadenison yeah, or anything like that so those patients will still get uh, dynamic stress or debutamine but uh, we we um, use it in quite a lot of patients with COPD which is the majority of the patients that we tend to see rather than true young asthmatics
0: yeah of course Um, Can we touch a little bit more on the reading of nuclear medicine studies? And I'm thinking here in particular of SPECT studies. Uh, I've seen some work published in uh, different journals about the use of machine learning algorithms, uh, which may be able to replace uh, readers in the future, is what you say in in your article. Can you talk a bit about whether this machine learning approach is still at the research stage or are some manufacturers starting to embed machine learning algorithms within their software?
1: Oh, it's still definitely in the research phase. Uh, our jobs are safe for the moment, um, but this is clearly a a fertile area, and the companies are very keen on looking at ways of improving uh, the machine learning algorithms. Um, I, I, we're looking, you know, I think, a decade or so ahead, but that's where these sort of algorithms will come in throughout the whole of nuclear medicine and radiology, um, and potentially even cardiology. Um, but also, but you know, it looks like a very interesting way of probably in the beginning assist the interpreter so there's lots of data that's already generated already lots of computer algorithms that come from the software that we use for spect imaging and they very much give us um, a guide and assist to interpreting the images that we're seeing they haven't yet replaced us um, now those are fairly simple programs the machine learning is is the exciting side of things um, but, clear, but no no manufacturer is it yet is at yet as yet promising um, to provide um, a robust clinical uh, platform that we can rely on, but I have to say yet
0: yeah exactly it's a very exciting area isn't it and I've seen this touching on obviously ECG machines have already got machine learning algorithms within them to to give us an idea of the diagnosis, and I can see this moving rapidly into radiology um, What about uh, new guidelines and new applications for SPECT Nick uh, in your paper, you mentioned things like the European guidelines which have suggested we can use well, let's go on to PET now. We can use FTG PET for device infections potentially or prosthetic valve endocarditis. Is this something that you're using in your unit in Oxford?
1: Yes, very much so. So not in the straightforward endocarditis, there's no need uh, to do an FDG PET scan in those patients. Um, in the more complicated uh, or slightly uncertain patients. So certainly prosthetic valve endocarditis we found incredibly useful. because it can help us uh, look for root abscesses, uh, look for um, graft, uh, you know, as a, 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 interposition graft um, uh, infection, as well as um, mycotic uh, disease elsewhere. So we've picked up FMA uh, aneurysms and um, splenic infarcts it's it's great from that point of view very useful for cardiac devices again more in the more complicated or if you've got culture negative patients you're not quite sure where you are that's where it can be very helpful we've used it once or twice also to determine if the patient's clear of infection once they've finished their course of antibiotics when we've had some diagnostic uncertainty so that we found very useful from an fdg pet point of view there is um, from a SPECT point of view um, a very interesting study is coming from a group in Paris, looking at uh, white cell scans and finding a, a very good specificity. So FDG PET has a very good sensitivity for prosthetic valve endocarditis and device infection. White cell SPECT has a very good specificity for infection, uh, again on devices and valves. And they're promoting that as a, as a, 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 a effectively a new trick for an old dog um, to, um, uh, you know, to try and help. In again, complex patients, multiple um, uh, problems, who uh, decision making can be difficult, and we're finding that the well, certainly they're finding, we're advocating that white suspect might have a role in that, in those particular group of patients. It's small numbers, um, but it, it looks quite interesting.
0: That sounds very interesting, particularly with a high specificity, so I guess you'd be expecting to rule it out in patients where you weren't quite sure. Yes. We've certainly used white it, cell scans here for things like splenic abscesses, but the French group is suggesting also using that information from the heart as well. Yes, yes. And um, finally, can we, can we turn towards the uh, new other traces in development, Nick? You've got things like uh, traces for sarcoid, amyloid, MIBG you mentioned here.
1: So um, again, these are all, old, most of them are old tracers which are finding new, um, new applications so um, we'll start with MIBG MIBG is um, an, an adrenaline analogue and it's been used for pheochromocytoma imaging for the last 30 odd years it's an iodine 123 label tracer and we can image the heart with it and there's lots of data now looking at denovated hearts so hearts that do not take up MIBG um, with, in patients with heart failure have a much higher cardiac event rate than those who take up the MIBG. And this is irrespective of and independent of the ejection fraction, the BNP level and of the NYHA class. So it looks like a very powerful way of determining risk in patients already who are at high risk. But one of the issues with this tracer is do we have the confidence to say if you have heart failure and normal innovation? could you say avoid an ICD? Hmm. And at the moment, that's a step too far for most electrophysiologists. They won't rely on a scan to tell them that information. And I think that's that's normal human nature. We're relatively reserved, and so I can understand that. But yeah. it, I, I, I've occasionally used this for patients who I think I can safely discharge into the community. And so if the MIBG uptake is good, but they've got poor LV and they're stable, maybe they don't need such regular follow-up so that may be a role for it well let's see where that goes
0: Mm, that's fascinating presumably there are ongoing studies or prospective studies using this to answer that question you raised
1: studies are underway again the manufacturers looking more i think at icd usage right um and it'll be interesting to see how that goes i I think it'll be difficult one um um to prove conclusively and you just need one patient not to have an icd and then to have uh, vf or vt and i think then that reduces confidence in the um, in the technology so watch this space um it may have um it, it may come through uh, there's no uh, no guarantees on that so the more interesting tracer that's found a new lease of life is, is technetium dpd um that's a bone scan tracer which um is uh, highly um, avid in patients with cardiac transthyretin amyloid. And that's the, a condition which previously we called senile amyloid, and it's a disease of the elderly, which has a, probably a significant proportion of patients with diastolic heart failure. Um, it's very good at causing heart block, uh, usually associated with people with carpal tunnel syndrome. And we are picking up transthyretin amyloid in a significant number of our heart failure patients. And this trace is, is a very sensitive, sort of close to 100%. And it's uh, effectively now, uh, there's no need to do cardiac biopsy if you're suspecting transthyretin amyloid. You can pretty much include it now with a positive uh, cardiac DPD scan.
0: That's fascinating. I hadn't realized that things had moved on quite so far with that tracer.
1: So uh, there was a paper in circulation um, from early 2016, uh, basically advocating this. And it was um, authored by the leading um, amyloid centres um, uh, throughout the world and, and most of the work actually has been driven by the National Amyloidosis Centre in the Royal Free, who should take credit for a lot of this work. Yeah. They've been very instrumental at uh, looking at these patients and producing the data with regard to this.
0: Absolutely. And finally, just to finish off with, on a more broader topic, that of uh, guidelines and the assessment of patients with chest pain. I know you've uh, been involved in, in studies of this type. And in the UK, there's recently been an update on, from the issued from the National Institute of Clinical Excellence about how we should assess patients with stable chest pain in the clinic. And th- those guidelines advocate strongly the use of cardiac CT as a first line test in almost everyone. Um, do you have any comment both on CG95 and also potentially on the use of competing techniques, should we call them MRCT, uh, in this kind of patient group?
1: Of course. So. Um, what you must first remember is that CG95, um, the standard, their reference standard was which test will approximate best to a 70% lumen on an invasive angiogram. And the literature searches and all the analysis is based on that. So this update, their references, does the patient have a 70% lumen Not, is the patient's symptom due to angina or not? So that's the first thing that must be borne in mind. So not surprisingly, if you have an anatomical reference standard, the test that's going to come out best is going to be the anatomical test. Yeah. Now, a CT coronary angiogram, which is normal, is an excellent, excellent test to have, and it's very reassuring for a patient. And for patients with relatively low pretest likelihood or intermediate uh, pre-test likelihood, it's a very interesting test, a very good test and very useful and should be used. In patients who have confirmed disease or who have an equivocal ct or typical symptoms i would argue and i think most people would argue that a functional test is more important which test whether it's mr uh, echo or, or nuclear is usually down to local expertise and what's available um i would argue that ct and nuclear actually rather than being um, competing are definitely complementary modalities mm. the way i the way i see angina and chest pain assessment in the future going is that for almost all patients we all want to know both the anatomy as well as the physiology and the reason to know the anatomy is to know the plaque burden because that gives you the risk of rupture um, and the risk of you know sudden death and myocardial infarction and by having the physiology the function the, the flow limitation we get an idea for Um, uh, Risk for again non-fatal myocardial infarction and it was also get the functional assessment in terms of uh, LV function and the risk of uh, mortality from that so I see us using anatomical and functional testing together potentially fusing it um, and the images that we get with CT and nuclear together in particular are are lovely and uh, We've had some and there's some very interesting data come out from Zurich showing that patients who have a matched perfusion defect with a coronary stenosis have a much higher cardiac event rate than the patients who have either a stenosis with no perfusion defect or who have um, uh, no flow limiting to these but also happen to have a perfusion defect due to mycoplasma disease, presumably. So um, it looks like it's a very interesting next five, ten years of how all the modalities work together. The NICE guidelines don't quite fit with the European and American guidelines, and I think that's partly because of the reference standard that was that that was chosen, and that must be borne in mind when we try to implement these guidelines in the UK.
0: Yeah, no, I can com- I would completely agree with that, Nick. And it it will be interesting to see how many centres are also physically able to implement the guidelines, which are, with such a dramatic prediction uh, for the increased need for cardiac CT, and whether, as you suggest, a more pragmatic approach is taken, and I suggest it, it probably will certainly in the short term. Um, I just want to thank you, Nick, for joining us on this episode of the Heart Podcast. Your paper is now live on the Heart website, and I'll put a link in the show notes and uh, encourage readers to uh, go and have a look at it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for asking me to be on.